My name is Erin. Um, I primarily work with freshmen, so if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. Um, I've been on staff for a long time. Um, I come from one of the flyover states. I don't know if any of you guys are from flyover states. They're great places to be from. Just the heartland of America. So if you hear a drawl or a twang, it's, it's my oaky roots coming out. Um, but I have the privilege of continuing this message series tonight that's called, that is entitled Written for Our Instruction. It's based on the passage in the New Testament. And 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, These things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So this series is looking back at the Old Testament, uh, people and decisions that were made and groups of people so that we can learn from them that all of God's word is written for our instructions so that we can know him and become more like him. So I'm continuing that tonight. We're going to look at a story that's a really interesting story. And this is kind of the story um, that blockbuster movies are made of this story. But this isn't just based on a true story. Like everything in this story is factual. It's accurate. It happened. Nothing is embellished or exaggerated. This is God's word and it's totally true and historical. So this story includes lies and deception trickery, uncovering the truth, anger, war. I couldn't find any romance. Maybe a warrior fell in love with a fair maiden, but it wasn't included in the the short chapters that we're looking at tonight. Maybe when we get to heaven, God will say, these two, they came together. I'm not quite sure. Um, But just to give you a little background to the story that we're looking at tonight. So in The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had no freedom. And God raised up Moses to let his people go. You guys might have seen the movies. Um, The plagues came. The Red Sea parted. Then they wandered for 40 years. So they had had this history of just not having a great quality of life. These people had known a lot of hardship. Moses died. He was an old man. And God raised up Joshua to lead his people into this promised land that God had said, this is going to be your place to settle, to dwell, to like plant crops and harvest them, to grow things and to just be settled in this land. And God gave really specific instructions to Joshua and the leaders. He said, there's going to be people already living there. So for the people that are close to you, these are the instructions. And But for the people who are far away, extend peace to them. But if they won't accept peace, then go to war with them. So offer peace first. But the people who lived in this land that they were getting ready to settle were very perverse people. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they had practiced perversion. And God said, I'm really concerned because, as you know, we're still like this thousands of years later. The human heart has been the same all of time. They were easily impacted by those that were around. And so he was concerned that if they aligned themselves, if they made alliances or treaties, that they would become like them culturally, religiously, spiritually, and the way that they were practicing to follow their gods was not the way God wanted the Israelites to practice. These people weren't just like worshiping idols and bowing down. They were involved in in just depravity. They were sacrificing children. We would call that murder. Um, They were practicing really abusive sexual practices, like calling them religious rituals. It was just disgusting, and God had had enough. And so this was kind of the land that God's chosen people were walking into. And so we're entering, we're like, this is like the Israelite story, and we're just like going to touch on a little sliver of it tonight. It's a really tiny story, but it's just packed full of great things that we can learn from. So I wanted to include a map tonight just so you can kind of see what we're talking about. I think it just makes it a little more real. Um, The red font, Gibeon, those are the people that we're going to be talking about. And then this is kind of all the people that were already there that they get to um, 
figure out how to deal with. So tonight we are only going to be talking about the Gibeonites. So we're starting in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. I'm just going to read a little bit, unpack it, read a little bit, unpack it, and we'll just work our way down. So Joshua 9, 1 through 6 says, Now when all the kings of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. These are smart people. Um, They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded down with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All of their bread and their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. So what happened is these people never got along. Before the Israelites got there, all of these different people, they were just warring tribal factions. They hated each other. But when this new group they hear about is coming in, they decide to band together. Like us against them. But the Gibeonites are like, no, no, we don't like that idea. We're coming up with our own idea. And so rather than join forces with everyone else, they're like, oh no, it's like an Oscar award winning. Like they even have props that they bring in. And I was going to dress in old clothes, but I thought you guys might like give me a Target gift card and be like, she can't afford clothing. Um, But I was like, my 1980s clothes, you guys would just think I was just weird. Um, That may take it a little far. So these Gibeonites were just sneaky. They were wise and sneaky, and they just kind of skirted in there, unaware to the Israelites. But God had told Joshua very clearly, do not make an alliance with anyone that is non-Israelite. Joshua knew this. So as we continue the story, just keep that in the back of your mind. Joshua knew better. So then the Israelites say to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked them, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and that all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet with them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins that were filled with, that were filled new. But see how cracked they are? And our old clothes and sandals are worn out from this very long journey. So I even like have visual aids because I like to do that. I tried to get my bread moldy, but it just got really, really hard. Like I feel like if I'm walking to my car tonight, this is my weapon. If someone comes against me, like bread is, yeah, watch out, Ethan. Bread is really hard. And I don't drink wine and I don't know where you buy wine skins, but I feel like the same thing. It's like, just like smell this milk. See, I, I won't open it in here because you may get nauseous. I did rinse it out. But it's this whole idea of like, just, t- oh, it did get a little moldy. It's like, look, on my journey. Like, look, can't you see, Joshua? We've come from a long, long way. Like, this is like Oscar award-winning performance. They had props. They had costumes. Like, they knew what they were doing. They were not dumb people. They were actually really wise warriors. And it appears from verse 9, you see that they had heard, like what Neil talked about last week with Rahab, it had been over 40 years 
since God had done all those miracles with the plagues in Egypt and the Red Sea and all that, and they were still talking about it decades later. They had heard the power of God and they were scared. So rather than join forces, they decided, oh no, we'll just try to trick them. And trick them they did. So the linchpin of this entire story of these next two verses, Joshua 9, 14 through 15 says, So the Israelites sampled their provision, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So I'm thinking sampled their provisions means that maybe he like took a bite and was like, oh, that's crusty, or like, oh, I'm going to break my teeth on it. I'm not quite sure, but we know that Joshua did not seek the counsel of the Lord, and so he didn't recognize the truth, right? This is like the most important thing he could have done, and he didn't do it. And then the, the verse 15, that part about the oath um, that they ratified in the name of the Lord. What they're saying is, we will protect you and we will not attack you. That's a really big deal. And you're talking about tribal warfare kind of communities and the way that people groups back then chose to relate. So this is a really big promise that they are making. So it's interesting that Joshua's prayer life teaches us what happens as much as when we don't pray, as much as, much as it teaches us how we should pray, right? It's like we learn from him that even when things like the facts are there, the bread is moldy, sure, like, surely the facts are there. I don't need to ask for input. I don't need to pray about this. No, no. What we see is this verse that you may have grown up hearing. You can probably buy a journal at TJ Maxx with this on the cover of it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So what Joshua did is what you and I are prone to do all the time. We see something, it just makes sense, and we lean on our own understanding. We lean, well, those are the facts. Then that just must be the right thing to do is to move forward with this, forgetting how God wants us to relate. Because God was really clear to the Israelites, just like he's clear to us. In Numbers 27, God said, inquire of the Lord. He wanted his people to be people who inquired of him first and then acted. And the same thing goes for us. He wants us to be people who depend on him, who lean into him and don't lean into our understanding and just look at what the facts may say. Because the same thing that is true for the Israelites is the same thing that is true for Christ followers today is that for those of us who follow Christ, we have Christ as the Lord, as the master of our lives. We also have an enemy, Satan, and he wants not just to deceive us, but to destroy us. You know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life abundant. In fact, in John, in the New Testament, John 8, 44, describes Satan like this. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That is the enemy that we're up against. The enemy that deceives, that plants those seeds of doubt. That's like, I don't really need to ask for input about this. This is, so, this is embarrassing. Like, people think I don't. I can't see or that I can't smell mold. Like, I mean, what's the deal? But no, that's how crafty the enemy is, is he doesn't set out to make you doubt. Like, well, the whole Bible is just a myth. It's not like that, but just to compromise a little bit. You know, not, not your whole heart, Aaron. God doesn't need your whole heart. He doesn't need your whole budget, just a little bit. Because what if you have a need later? Like, keep some of it for yourself. Don't give him everything. What if you need something later? He entices us in these small ways to compromise. And so we withhold from God rather than surrendering to God. So you may be wondering in this story, 
did they ever realize that they had been snookered? I love that word, snookered. Um, because they did get, I mean, like you tease your brothers or you like brothers and sisters have these kind of wars. I feel like, oh, Joshua. And I am one of those people who hates conflict. So I'm so glad I was not there when they realized what had happened because I don't think it was pleasant at all. That the disguise, I don't know how they found out. It's not spelled out in scripture, but I don't think it was a good discovery. That these people really were not from far away. That those sandals were just old. Um, that that wineskin, they just left it out there for a couple of days. You know, it's like they hadn't been traveling. They were just thespians. They were amazing actors. It's just incredible. So, oh yes, three days. It took them three days to discover this. And so in Joshua 9, 16 through 18, it says, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors. Not like faraway neighbors, like close neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day, they came to their cities. Gibeon, Kephirah, Biroth, it's sorry, I'm butchering these names. If there's any Hebrew speakers here, please forgive me. And Gareth Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them, which is a good thing, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against their leaders. Like, I can't imagine that was a pleasant journey either. Um, my family, I grew up like almost on the Texas border, but in Oklahoma, because that's like, you know, the better state as we grew up thinking. Um, but my grandparents lived in Toronto. So every summer we would drive straight through because my parents didn't have enough money for a hotel. Or they said they were just frugal people. So we would drive. And by the time we got to Detroit, my dad had pretty much had enough. He hadn't slept in days. The three of us in the back seat, And there was traffic in Detroit. And then there's that long borderline. So this is what I'm picturing is like, you know how you just know when to be quiet when things are tense? Like they weren't being quiet. They were mumbling and grumbling. And Joshua and the leaders knew they were not happy with the decision these leaders had made. They were not happy and they were not being silent about it. No one likes to be deceived. Not you, not me, not anybody. It was not good. So this is how the leaders responded to the grumbling in verses 19 through 21. The leaders answered and said, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leaders promised to them was kept. So it's interesting that the people wanted to totally disregard the covenant that had made before God. They're like, forget it. it. You didn't have the facts. You were deceived. So surely that covenant doesn't stand because the way it was made, you were tricked into it. Surely we can get out of it. Isn't there some clause in here? And these leaders are saying, no, because we are honorable men of integrity, we cannot break this oath. If we do, we will incur the wrath of God. Wow. I can't even imagine what the wrath of God would be. But these men did not have to experience that because they kept the covenant. Because I can't imagine them, like, I'm sure the Gibeonites saw them coming and were thinking, okay, what's going to happen now? Are they going to let us live? Because they had totally deceived them. They had snookered them. It happened. And to break the covenant would dishonor God and bring down his wrath. This was a really, really, really big deal. So then the, like the tensions mounting, Joshua's coming up. He summoned the Gibeonites. Okay, like you people, come here. Um, their future was in Joshua's hand, literally. 
And so Joshua says to them, this is a question, like, I don't know if your dad ever asked why did you choose to disobey? Like, I don't know. So he asked the Gibeonites, why did you deceive us by saying, we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord had cho- would, cho- would choose, and that is what they are to this day. While they could not go back on their pledge because they would incur the wrath of God, the Gibeonites had deceived them. So there was punishment that went along with the sin that they had committed. So Joshua rebuked them for their dishonesty. Like, what you did was totally wrong. I'm like, no excuse, no justification. What you did was wrong. But he also sentenced them because of their wrong. And they had offered to be subjects to Israel, and Joshua said, no, no, you you lose your freedom. Because of the way you entered into this contract, you will lose your freedom. But what's so amazing about this is that what it means to be a woodcutter and a water barrier for the Israelites is that they would be in the in the tabernacle, in the temple of God. So day after day after day, they would be exposed to the worship of the one true God. So to keep the Gibeonites' idolatry from infiltrating the culture of the Israelites, from defiling the true faith of the Israelites, that work would be carried out in God's place where God dwelt. They would be exposed to the worship of the one true God again and again and again. So God took this curse that was upon them, that you have lost your freedom, and actually gave them the opportunity to choose ultimate freedom, which is found in following God. That these Gibeonites would experience God on a level that a lot of people don't. We fast forward to the next chapter, and a miracle is performed on behalf of the Gibeonites. In fact, the tabernacle one day is pitched in Gibeon, the place where God would dwell, would be right there in that place where these people had just totally deceived God's people. And that is how the grace of God works in my life and in your life as well. Yes, there are consequences for our sin. Yes, normally God lets, naturally they just play out, and that's just part of our sin nature and living in a fallen world. But in God's mercy and in his grace, he often turns those things that we just are greatest regrets into things that really bless us in the end and glorify him. And only a God like our God can do something that amazing in a situation where it didn't look like there was going to be any good ending to this, that this was a situation filled with regret and remorse. And later on, while the Israelites would go into idolatry, because they would continue to disobey God, they would intermarry with people who did not worship God, their hearts would be drawn away from God. The Gibeonites, day after day, year after year, generation after generation, would continue to be before the altar of God, hearing truth again and again. That is an amazing story. So we can learn a lot about making decisions from Joshua can't we? But there's more to the story of the Gibeonites that we're going to just cover very briefly. And the second half is about keeping commitments. Because poor Joshua's probably like, I'm done with the Gibeonites. God, can we just forget this happened? I'll settle over here, keep them over there. I'd never want to talk to them again. Oh, but that's not what happens. Because um, 
God is really interested in us being people who keep our word. In fact, all throughout scripture, even Jesus talks about this, that let, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Because how many of us have wounds that we carry in our life because of conversations we've had with people where people just kind of make flippant remarks about, oh yeah, let's go do that. Or for your birthday, we'll go do this. And then your birthday comes around and they don't show up and you're just there because they said something just flippantly and you took it as that's what we're going to do. And they took it as like, oh, I was just talking. Oftentimes that just talking really leaves deep wounds in our lives, doesn't it? And so God wants us to be people who don't just talk, but who make commitments and keep those commitments because that reflects a faithful, promise-keeping God. I think surely that one of the reasons God wants us to be good to our word is so that people around us know that he is good to keep his word. So if you fast forward a little bit, and I don't know how much time took place. I don't think it was that long because these kings that were in the surrounding area got word of what Gibeon had done, that they hadn't joined forces with them. They had decided to do their own thing, and it, they were mad. They were really mad. And so they decided to come together and fight Gibeon because they're like, okay, you don't join us, then we're coming against you, which would be terrifying because though Gibeon... They have good fighters, as you see in Joshua 10 to it says, this king of Jerusalem, he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, first of all, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, which had just been conquered by the Israelites, and all the men were good fighters. So this wasn't a city full of like pansy, weak people. This was a city of warriors, and they were scared. So they send word to Joshua, like, hey, remember that covenant that you made with us? That agreement that you would protect us and that you would fight for us, that you wouldn't hurt us, that you would come to our aid? Oh, yeah, well, we need you right now. So what you see in Joshua, like, this is just an amazing man. He spent all night marching, and you see in uh, chapter 10, verses 7 to 8, that Joshua marked marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. That You don't see Joshua saying, man, I so regret that decision. And you know what they did to me was so wrong. I really want them to suffer. I really want them to pay the consequences of that. So I'm going to bring not just the B team, like the C, D, and E team. Like, we're just going to be there, but we're not really going to do anything. No, no, Joshua brings the best of the best because he is an honorable man who kept his commitment before God. And so he's risking the life of his best fighters to help out these people who had deceived him and who had tricked him. And then God says in verse 8 to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So it's so cool how God just jumps in the story in such incredible ways. That God is saying, keeping your oath is really important And it's so important that he was going to intervene in the story. So we're just going to quickly jump through what happened. So, you know, this is war. I've never been in war. Hopefully none of you have been in war. I hope never to be in war. But um, in verse 10, it says that the Lord threw them into confusion. So what I picture about war um, is that you need to know who your enemy is. So confusion means you don't know who you're fighting against, which means you can't win a war if you don't know who you're fighting against. So God somehow threw the enemy army into confusion. And then the next thing that happens in verse 11, God threw hailstones. And I grew up in Tornado Alley, and hailstones can be huge, like golf ball baseball, softball-sized hails that do incredible damage, like an act of God through nature. God threw down hailstones to help them. In the next verse, verse 12, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. And I would so encourage you to read this passage right here, Joshua 10, verse 12, because in it, 
Joshua prays that the sun would stand still. So that solar eclipse that happened on the first day of class, that ain't nothing compared to what happened in Joshua 10, 12. Read it. God moved in incredible ways to aid this army in defeating their enemies. And then in verse 14, Joshua 10, 14 says, in response to how the sun stood still, there has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. That there's no explanation of why they would win the war except that God was fighting on their behalf. That God puts this story in his words so that we would know how to respond and that we would know God's heart about keeping our own commitments. When it's tough, when it's inconvenient, when it's uncomfortable, when we have to lose sleep. Because again, I really feel like one of the reasons this story is in there so that we would learn to be people to keep our word so that other people around us could know a God who keeps his word. Because we live in a culture and in a world today where your word really means nothing. It's like, well, we shook on it. Well, what does that mean? Even a signed contract, people get out of it. We look for loopholes and technicalities. We want to get out of things. And God says, no, no, as followers of me, you reflect my heart when you keep your commitments and you do what you're going to what you say you're going to do and i don't know about you but i'm so prone to like excuses and justification and trying to just make it easier on me and more comfortable and that's not how god wants us to live so two principles that i want to leave you with that i hope that you will take to heart and this will really become a part of your life because i was thinking this is a small percentage of everyone at usc but what if this group alone decided to be people who when they made decisions, they sought God and they did what God wanted them to do. And when they made commitments, they kept them. Just think about how that would change your, your roommate situations, your group projects, your relationships with your parents, your family, your professor. Like That really makes a difference because it's a very rare thing in the world that we live in. So two principles, starting with number one. When you need to make a decision, this is what I would encourage you to do, is stop. Like a screeching halt, like someone just stepped into the intersection and the police was right behind you and you're like, oh my gosh. Like screech to a halt, don't make a decision out of emotion. Don't rush into a decision. Slow down. Even ask the individual, like, can I have some more time to think about this? Like, I don't want to be hasty because I heard this girl speak at Christian Challenge about this man named Joshua and the moldy bread, and I'm not rushing into things. I learned from that. <laughs> Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way, like the moldy bread, the wineskins, their old sandals, their clothes were threadbare. It all pointed to being long lost travelers, but no, it was totally wrong. Things that look like, I don't need to talk to anybody about this. This is just common sense. This would be embarrassing for me to ask for input from this. No, no. God has set things up in a way that we can really learn from each other and learn from his word. So stop. Stop. Don't rush into anything. Stop. The second thing is, look. Look. Get the facts. Look beyond the moldy bread. Look beyond the wineskins. Ask questions. Research. Investigate. Consider yourself like a undercover agent. I don't know what you need to do, whatever hat you need to wear, but look beyond what you can see and ask more questions. I mean, Joshua's like, where do you come from? Well, liars, they're like, they're not going to tell you the truth. If they put all that effort into their outfit, they're probably not going to tell you the truth. So you need to investigate and get more facts. Don't just look. And the last thing is listen. So stop, look, and listen. Ask God for insight. He has given you a brain and he wants you to use it, but he's also given you his word, and he will never contradict 
his word. So he will always lead you in line with what his word says. God has also blessed you with life group leaders and a staff who love you and parents who are older and wiser and know you and want to help. But my caution to you, because I know you and I am you, is when you go to someone, when you're in the listening stage of this, you're not asking for their stamp of approval on the decision you have already made. You are asking for their insight and help. Okay? So with a humble heart, approach it. Not like, okay, what do you think? I've already decided I'm going to do this. I already bought the plane ticket. Well, what do you want me to say? I hope it's Southwest. I mean, like, no. (laughs) You need to ask before you dive in. Ask questions. Okay, so we stop, look, and we listen. We make decisions. And then commitments. Once you have made a commitment, keep it. It sounds so simple, but it's not. Once you've made a commitment, keep it. A foolish commitment is still a commitment. I'll say that again. A foolish commitment is still a commitment. Joshua kept it, the army kept it, and God kept it. We can learn from their example. These things were written for our instruction, right? Integrity is more important than money or comfort. Integrity is more important than money and comfort. Proverbs 19.22 says, What a person desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. It is better to not know how you're going to make rent October 1st than to be known as someone who is dishonest, unfaithful, and untrustworthy. It is better to be poor than to be known as someone who is a liar. If you and I can't keep our commitments that are inconvenient, we will never be able to keep commitments that are costly. If you and I cannot keep commitments that are inconvenient, we will never be able to keep commitments that are costly. And there are costly commitments in life. Commitments greater than losing some sleep or having to pay extra money. So you may be thinking, oh, this was heavy. I'm not sure. Maybe some commitments have come to your mind that you're like, oh my gosh, well, Tomorrow's a new day. We'll just forget those things ever happened and just start fresh tomorrow. What I would encourage you, if God has brought something to mind where you thought, I really did not do well with that commitment. I kind of just let it go, and um, I kind of just want to avoid that person and not talk to them again. What I would encourage you to do, rather than continue in disobedience and continue being unfaithful, is to repent. To repent before God He already knows it anyway. You're not keeping anything from him. Repent. Own it. Gosh, I was just so consumed with myself or whatever it was. um, To repent, to ask forgiveness from the people that you have wronged who have been impacted by your lack of faithfulness or lack of keeping the commitment. Not just like, I'm sorry, but like, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Those are powerful words. So repent and then recommit. Like, God... Only by your grace can I be a faithful person. Only by your grace can I keep commitments because it's so inconvenient to be committed, isn't it? It's costly. But committed people really reflect the heart of a committed God. And what you see over and over again is like just like that song that we sang tonight, that all of God's, Jesus' promises are yes and amen. In Jesus, that is true, that he is a promise-keeping God. And the more we stop, look, and listen, and seek him in making decisions, and we make commitments and keep them, then we reflect the God that he is to a world that so desperately needs him and is so confused on who he is. So that is my challenge to you. May you never look at moldy bread again in your life without thinking about the story of the Gibeonites and thinking, I want to be someone 
who makes decisions that honor God because I've sought him, and I want to be someone who keeps my commitment. So let me pray, and then we'll welcome back up the worship team. Father, we are so amazed that you have preserved your word and that there are these stories that you have given us for our instructions, that people we won't meet this side of heaven, but we can learn from their their good choices and the choices that they regretted as well. Thank you for how you alone can redeem our bad choices, that by your grace, that blessing can flow out of them and that you can use that. Would you grow us into people who are wise in the way we make decisions and who are faithful in the way we keep commitments? We love you and ask these things in your name. Amen.